The following is an original audio series from Sierra International Machinery, Pile of Scrap, with your host, John Sacco. All right, good good afternoon, everybody. How we doing? I have no business being on stage with these four gentlemen other than Pile of Scrap, the podcast, and I'm happy to be here. You guys are some, like, mega stars here. I mean, really, if you got, listen, I'll tell you, I flew in on our, we have a company plane, fly in, just so you know how insignificant I feel, I have the smallest jet than all these guys over here, so that's when you know you're still small. All right, well, let's get started. The big bad wolf is here, vertical integration, steel mills, owning, operating, metal recycling facilities. You know, we have some pretty big companies around, sitting up here who represent a lot of tonnage, and you compete every day. How is that changing on a, you know, your focus on what you're doing, and how are you competing against that? And Jay, we'll start with you down there. I guess when I, when I think about this topic, everybody's worried, everybody's talking about it. the steel mills are buying up scrap companies. You know, I don't care. We're here to compete, and I don't care if you're a steel mill or a scrapyard. I think there are scrap companies in every town, and I tell this to everyone. I was just telling somebody today. There is a recycler in every town, in every city, in every state you go into. You can't buy them all up. You can't get them all together. You're never going to consolidate them all as much as George is trying really hard. But scrap, scrap stays local. Scrap stays close. It travels. It's logistics. There's always going to be places. There's always going to be a competitor. Sometimes it's a big mill that really doesn't play well in the scrap business. They're a good competitor. Sometimes it's a really great scrap company that runs a really good scrap yard, a steel mill that runs a really good scrap yard. And they're a strong competitor, but they're still in the same business. It's a commodity. There's a price it's going to trade at, and the price that makes sense that you can buy it off the street anywhere. And so you can bake overpriced if you want. Sometimes you get a mill that says, well, they're going to pay $30 over the market pollute a market. What does it do? You can't sell to them because they're buying really, and they're melting really expensive scrap. And they say, scrap's really expensive. Your scrap's expensive because you could buy it on the open market the same way everybody else's. So I'm not really afraid. I think they're all different. I think it depends on your relationship with the mill. I welcome competition because it's just part of the world we're all in. And as John has said before on, on Repurpose, you got to have grit or you cannot be in this business. So bring it on. Right on. Kevin. Thank you, John. Well, I'm on the East Coast on Long Island, so I don't really have the phenomenon of having to compete with a shredding plant owned by a consumer. And I don't think I would want to compete with a shredding plant owned by a consumer. I'd like to be as macho as Jay and say, let it all fly, but I believe the steel mills owning a shredder have a distinct advantage over an individual shredder operator. On the other side, when consumers start consolidating shredding plants, it puts me, a shipper, into the Midwest a little bit harder. Because now that that consumer has their own shred, my springboard scrap, which is expensive because of the freight, is needed a little bit less. George? Look at if there was, if there was only one steel mill out there, right, then maybe it makes a difference. But there's a lot of steel mills and there's a lot more steel mills being built. And so there's always gonna be competition for your scrap. And I feel that uh, you know, steel mills have been owning scrap yards for a long time. 
I think they're going to continue to do that. I think they're going to continue to buy more. It's just a fact. You got a lot more steel mills being built. There's what 12 million tons of new capacity coming online here soon, and uh, and I think there's more coming after that. So, I think there's always plenty of room for business, just like Jay said, and the uh, and I think that the I don't care who you are. I don't care if you have you know 100 plus yards like I do. You'll never beat a determined entrepreneur. A small owner, operator, entrepreneur will kick your ass every single time. It's just a fact. And, um, you know, they're focused. They're there every day. They're living it. And so I think there's always a place for all of those guys. And as long as there's enough steel mills to compete so that even if one steel mill, as, you know, Kevin is saying, wants to overpay for its shreds, or Jay or someone said, wants to overpay for their shreds, there's still another steel mill that then is losing that material and, and, you know, wants it from you. And so I think the market's the market out there. And I think as long as we have a lot of steel mills, we're good to go. So, Danny? Well, I, one observation is all of us up here are from the scrap business. And, and that's a good place to be from. And uh, I think I, well, Jay was with Schnitzer for a time, but I think I'm the only one that has worked through that type of consolidation activity. Uh, and I would tell you the scrap business c can compete. I agree with the guys. And I agree with George that no one can best an, a sharp entrepreneur. And, if, and I think the industry is stratifying. And as, as we saw what happened in the Midwest, and that last wave of consolidation, uh, the mill mentality or the focus of what the mills are trying to accomplish is very different than what drives an entrepreneurial scrap company. And so there will always be a place for that. And I think the future bodes well for the small to medium players who will have that opportunity and there will always there will be a scrap business. There will be consumption. The uh, the demand patterns, the pricing patterns, the market trends will change. But I think bring it on. Okay, so you guys are a bunch of tough guys here. Bring it on. But let's ask this question that gets I hear people talk about all the time. A lot of these mills keep pricing down on their scrap because they want their profits in the mill sector on the new side versus their yards. Do you believe that to be true or is it just really truly an open and fair free market? Anyone could jump in anytime, but George. Okay, I the the market sets the price of scrap. And so I mean the mill can come out there and trade us to try to set a price or they could try to put all the profits on you know on the steel side and not on the scrap side, but if they're under pain, they're going to lose the scrap. So, I think it's easy to say. I think it's hard to do. And I think I don't care how big you are, the market sets the price, and the uh, and I think that's always going to be the case. Anybody else? But then it's exactly where I was coming from. You can overpay the market, but if you can buy it for less on the open market, why would you do it? You see some people trucking scrap farther than you could ever imagine. Well, it doesn't matter if it's more expensive, it's our shredder. 
it matters what the commodity is valued at when it hits the ground. And if you want to be competitive in the steel business, I think you have to be competitive in how you, how you produce it. You should be matching our, our markets, what we're living with, because that is the real true nature of the competitive, of the competitive mill. Danny? I think the issue is uh, less the market, the real market, than the transfer prices between the mills and their captive scrap companies. And that's where you see all kinds of disruption and all kinds of chaos uh, because it's fine for a, a consolidated company that's a steel company with a scrap arm to report earnings or profits however they want. But if you don't address the underlying issues internally, then you can find that the scrap operations become demotivated or disincentivized and, and have, have trouble competing. And uh, so that's the flip side of, of the market stuff. Kevin, you got anything to add there? I don't really buy into it that they're trying to, that anyone's trying to lower prices to affect their margin on their sales because that's what you're supposed to do. Our job is to buy scrap cheap, whether we're a scrap processor or a consumer. To some degree, we can't really dictate the price we sell for. Both our markets, commodities, the buy and the sell side. But from my perspective, it's a lot easier to try to dictate your buy price than it is to dictate your sell price. And for those that are vertically integrated, it's left pocket, right pocket. How they report to the public is meaningless. It's their internal justification. And I believe that vertical integration provides advantages. Same thing with scrapyards who have, have feeder operations. Whether we're paying it at the shredder or paying it at the retail yard, we're still one entity. Our goal is to own the scrap. Where we place that profit has much other different incentives from taxes and everything else um, than it does what our true profit is. Fair enough. All right, last question about steel mills and their vertical integration. How about some of the people out in the audience who might operate a, if, you know, a small yard, but they're getting shut out on a mill, which would be their closest mill to ship to because that mill's vertically integrated and they don't have a shred and they're getting all the material they need. Now they've got to send their material at a further distance. What advice would you give them that, you know, they can stay in the market and still compete? So if you're looking at me. I'm looking I, at I you, think, I think, I th Are you looking at me? Yeah, I'm um, talking to you. So to every small guy here, and here is the place, and, and for everyone here, I'm a kid from a small scrapyard in Massachusetts, and every little yard matters, and every yard matters. And you can compete, and by there is a role and a position for every recycler in this country. And I am telling you, no matter who you are, if you can buy it, if you take care of your customers and they come into that yard, or you're picking it up or you're servicing somebody, you can sell it and you can make a profit. And I think that that is always just part of the inherent nature, and it's the great part of this industry that you can, you, there are so many different cogs, you don't have to have a shear, you don't have a shredder. The most important guys in my life has always been the peddler that came in that door every day. Rain, cold, snow, shine, that guy was feeding his family and he was the most important guy to me and I think that that's, that is why that's always gonna be part of our industry. I don't think they have to worry. Anybody else? You good? Kevin? Yeah, I think that goes to relationships. If you're really shut out of a mill, 
I would be hard pressed to believe it's because that consumer has their belly full from other scrap on the small scrapyard, and more to believe that you have a lack of a relationship, a quality issue, or maybe you just want too much money for your scrap, but it all comes down to relationship. There should be no reason why you should be locked out of a mill unless you effed it up. You want to, Danny? I'll take that too. Um, I, I see it a little differently. I think the situation to describe is gonna be a temporary casualty of the consolidation that impacts small and mid-sized dealers in various areas at various times just by virtue of the fact that, that the mills have, have consolidated in order to secure their own supply of scrap. So that will inevitably happen from time to time, but does not, does not negate you know, what Jay's saying and Kevin's saying about relationships and people having to be in the market all the time. George, anything to add? Look at I, the... the um, I think Kevin said it right. If you do something wrong at a steel mill, you know, local steel mill, or you're not having that relationship, then they'll cut you off. But there's always another steel mill to sell to, even if it's farther away. And or you modify your business where you're doing more non-ferrous instead of um, instead of ferrous, right? Because we're really talking about steel mills right now. But there's a lot more to our business than just steel. And, you know, there's a lot of companies that um, uh, you just change when they're when your business is modified. And so maybe you're not handling as much steel and you're handling more non-ferrous. There's always other aspects or you're selling new steel. Or I just feel like there's a, a million different ways to modify. And the, I, I think you can always compete. Right on. All right, we're gonna shift away from vertical integration to some individual questions that I have for the panel. All right, Danny, you sold, your family sold Omnisource. How long ago was that? 2007. That's a long time ago. Long time ago. For what ago. was a staggering number? You didn't, what's that? That's why he has a bigger plane than you. <laughs> Touche, you got it. All right, so you sold out, but you came back in. Why? Wasn't that enough? I mean, what was it? What is it that makes the Rifkin family and you, Danny, to say, I'm coming back, I've been on the sidelines way too long? Well, I've thought about that often over the last however many years. But uh, at that time, and it still holds true, I wasn't done. I wanted to stay in the business. I wanted to be part of that company. My brothers and I had all kinds of visions for that consolidated company in the future, and it didn't work out. So when we left, there was some sense of unfinished business, some sense of being lost and losing your identity, and some sense of just that kind of stuff. And then uh, we've, we've done some other things as a family and family office. And then uh, four years into my covenant, my oldest son called me and said, Dad, I've had enough of doing all this other stuff. I want to come back and do something with you, which was the happiest day of my life. And then, uh, so he comes back and we tried some of the private equity stuff, stuff and that was a snoozer. And it was about that time that we believed that uh, there was an opportunity to get back in the business, like these guys have said. 
Somebody takes their eye off the ball. Somebody's not paying attention. People were not servicing generators or suppliers like we had grown up or developing those relationships, and we saw that as an opportunity. And so five years later, we started Metalex. There you <laughs> and then you, you opened up again a, a couple shredders, right? You sold them again. We sold all the Ferris. So, are you done with Ferris? Or all these guys, all these guys can talk about consolidation and Ferris, but I identify as aluminum guy now. Okay, well, we're <laughs> going to get into that in a bit. George, with your rapid expansion, you know, I've talked to a lot of people here, and we always talk about how tough it is to find quality people to fill positions in our company with over 130 something yards. Tell us about your challenge there and what you're doing. To, to attract talent? Okay, people are always the biggest, you know, issue or resource or asset, right? People are the biggest asset of a company. And I think the way you keep good people is you value them, you listen to what they have to say, you um, incentivize them with, um, you know, I always call, I always say my yard managers are profit partners. I mean, they're not equity partners in my company, but they're profit partners because they all share in the profit of our companies. And uh, but all of the comp all of our people uh, throughout the company, everybody participates in the profit. We pay out between two and three million dollars in bonuses a month, every single month. And people are always shocked when I say that, but it's true. And um, and so I feel if you're going to get the best people, then. Uh, you know, p people say, like, there's two styles, right? There's top-down, right? All the decisions are made by this incredibly brilliant God at the top and tells everybody what to do, and then nobody does anything unless he or she tells them to do, or there's bottom-up. Okay, I'm not that smart, so I'm not top-down, so I'm obviously bottom-up. And so, you know, I believe that you, um, you support the guys on the bottom uh, of your company, and you listen to what they say, and that's how you build a great company. I, when I buy a new company, the first thing I do is I walk in the lunchroom, on the whiteboard, I write my name, my email address, and my cell number. And every single employee in the company gets my cell number, every single one. And um, you know, any new employees we hire get a copy of my book, which I brought a bunch of them over there if you guys want one. And um, they, uh, they get a copy of my book, and they get a letter from me, and they get my cell number. And every single employee in the company, I don't care if you're a belt picker or a forklift driver, everybody gets my cell number. Right on. All right, Kevin, for you, being out on the island as we discussed, okay, you and your brother, the next generation coming on into the company, and you have a nephew in it as well. Um, where does Gershaw go to get off the island to grow? Is it more up New England? What, what, what are you going to do? I need permission from George to get off the island first. <laughs> well, he might vote you off the island, but... Uh... I think one of the m most amazing things about our industry, for any scrap processor, whether they're a small retail yard or a large conglomerate like, like SA or us or anyone, one of the most amazing things is that expansion is a different definition than most industries. In most industries, expansion is solely about sales and volume of units sold. But in our industry, we can have the same volume of units sold, but we can invest 
to sell them for more. We can have internal expansion. You sell wire, you buy a wire chopper, you increase your margin. You have light iron, you put a logger in, you put a shredder in. You, there's so much, all the exhibitors here today, it's all about internal growth. So there's two types of growth in our industry. One's internal, so, solely investing in yourself. The other is the larger picture of acquisitions. Uh, Gershaw is a Long Island-based company. Um, we started out in eastern Long Island, and we've been heading west ever since, and we operate 10 facilities in the Long Island marketplace. We're always looking at opportunities, but we're looking at opportunities that are synergistic to strengthen our position. Right on. Jay, family business grew up, family business out in Massachusetts. You end up out west at Schnitzer before they went public, or... You, no, I was there right just as they went public. Okay, well, it was a fa big family business. You went to the publicly held company. Now you're back with Alter, CEO of Alter, family business. Tell us about the dynamic, family to public, back to family, and how, how's that experience been for you and, and what that really means? So, so actually, you left off one more. I left my family. <laughs> I went, <laughs> and I, I mean that. When I left them... I went into Seussman and Blumenthal in Hartford, Connecticut. So great family, incredible business. It was Pratt & Whitney, Hamilton Standard, Sikorsky Air, this huge um, industrial-based business that was doing titanium and nickel and aluminum. I'm, I'm, I'm now in Danny's world. Big aluminum foundry, big aluminum process. And then I ended up at Schnitzer. And although it was a public company, it was a family business. It was held tightly by the family. It was really one run like one for 15 of the, of the 17 years I was there. And it was just great. And then we came a little publicy, And then I bumped into Rob and I ended up at, at Alter and went back to a privately held family business. And what I found out is I do really well in family businesses as long as it's not my family. <laughs> so I, it, it's kind of been my thing. And, and uh, um, I like it. I think that a lot of this industry came out of families. George and I have known each other for years. I've known Kevin's family forever. You know, Danny, John, you know, it, it's about relationships. It's about families. It's about connection. And that's the part I like. I mean, I've got so many friends in this room, people I've just met, and people I've known for, you know, 35, 40 years. And to me, the difference was from a public to a private. And I'm going to get to your question here. Yeah, it's fine. Keep going. Is it when, when Schnitzer became much more public, after Leonard passed away, all of a sudden it didn't feel the same. And I was like a fish out of water. The most important guy in that plant was the guy on the end of a torch or the guy on that yard when it was 100 degrees. And that wasn't necessarily the case. It was living life 90 days at a time. And it wasn't that it was Schnitzer. It was just everything was about reporting in 90 days. And that's not this business. That's not who we are. You know, it's vision past, you know, looking out 10 years and 20 years for the next generation. I know George is looking for Tyler and, his, and Tyler's kids. Rob once said to me, he goes, I want you to look out 10 years. Then he had grandchildren. He's got to look out 30 years. And it's like, okay, now this is getting a little harder. But that's the difference in this business. It's a family business. It's close. It's multi-generational. It's a fantastic, I listened to Danny talk about his son coming and saying, I want to do something with you. That's what this business is, and that's what gets somebody excited, and that's what makes you successful. 
you're out there with Tyler, you know, driving away and, and, and the other boys, and, and you're all going 100 miles an hour. That makes it a passion and a business and a family. And it really does, this industry is very much suited for that. Well, all right. So this is, segues perfectly into family business. Sierra, we're a family business. My brother and I are second generation with uh, my nephew, little Phil, in the wings to step up to be that third generation. So you're all family businesses. One way or another, Jay, you run a family business. What are the opportunities and challenges within that maybe the people in the audience who have family businesses and, you know, they're trying to grow it, they're trying to figure things out. What can you tell them? What can you tell them that has made it work? You know, it's tough. Family businesses are tough. But we're looking at some very successful family businesses sitting up here on the stage. So how about some advice for the people in the audience about this? Look, at I, I think you need a clear succession plan, right, as far as what's going on, especially when you have um, the uh, different siblings in the business that aren't necessarily as involved and their kids aren't necessarily involved. Who's going to continue on the business? And so I think it's really so many family businesses get destroyed through lack of a, a, succession, a succession plan, and they get destroyed by people arguing over money. And I think it's really important that you try to set that plan up. And, uh, you know, I was fortunate enough to have amazing siblings, you know, so we've had a really smooth um, plan as I, as I continue to buy out my siblings. But I'm being really careful on how I set up my sons so that uh, because they're really running the company now on the day-to-day -day basis and um, on how that succession plan is going to go. But I think it's, it's critical is having a good succession plan. All right, who wants to jump in here? Kevin, how about you? Well, just because you own stock in Coca-Cola doesn't mean you can walk up and say, give me a job and a high-paying job. That's the, one of the bigger challenges that family businesses have, entitlement. I think another challenge is ego, and it becomes the responsibility of whoever the patriarch or matriarch is to recognize just as you would any employee, what their capabilities are. And a lot of family businesses will put family members in positions they just don't belong in. That's a challenge. It's hard to knock your own family, to knock down or to say your own children or child or nephew shouldn't be in that position. Another side effect of family businesses that I think is a key to their success, or at least is in my situation, is we are a top down. We, I live in a, in a dictator's world. And as much as we have decisions that I disagree with violently, we follow those because that's the rule of law. But that's what's made us successful, following orders, everybody on the same program. But I also believe that you have to, that book, Good is Great, How do Great Companies Become Good Companies, or I might have it backwards, you have to put people in the right position, whether they are family or not family. That's important to the success of a family All business. Right. So, so who becomes the arbitrator if the patriarch's gone and you're, you don't have the succession plan, George, that you've talked about? Who becomes the arbitrator saying who is in the right position? A bunch of lawyers. That's not cheap. That's what we call chaos. 
And that's why we're, well, this is why I, th this topic's important. And I think we, I want to continue with Jay and then Danny about, you know, you're in a family dynamics over there at Alter, and, you know, you're in charge, but you got, you know, there's family, there's three brothers and all these different divisions and what have you, uh, Jay. So I, I my, my information is probably not as much about where I am today and the family. They, they've been incredibly supportive. They look for talent. Our company in general tries to hire talent. And then it's like, go, run. It's like running with scissors. You know, try not to fall down too often. You're, if you're not challenging yourself, you're not going to be successful. But the real thing that I think to share is one of the misconceptions out there is that if you're in a family business, it's easy. I can tell you that is the farthest thing from the truth. Whether you're a family member involved in it or you're an employee that's caught between it, there are times family business businesses are just difficult. You're eating dinner together. You're getting up together. You're going to try and vacation together. You, you don't get a lot of space to ever breathe and be yourself. And it's hard to figure out that path. So I've seen a lot of relationships struggled. You know, as I said, I, I left my family. We didn't speak 20 years. But it, it was either you're out of the family. My grandmother didn't speak to me till the day she died. You left the family business, you're dead to me. And that's how I feel about it. If you, but so I, it's a matter of trust. Do you trust the person that, that you've gotten with the business next to you, whether it's family and other or not? And it's maintaining trust and open communication that's really hard. And that's what makes any business successful. It's just that much harder in a family business. And you never know what goes on behind the family on other issues. So I think it is, it is anytime you're looking like, wow, he's just a family member. That's easy. He gets it because he was born... You know, that is just not the truth. So that's my, my little outsider-looking-in viewpoint. Danny? Well, provocative question, because when you asked it, it made me think back to my grandfather and when I was a kid. And uh, in those days, it was very top-down, and all I had to remember was whatever he told me was the right thing to do. And then as the company grew and my brothers and I came in and my father uh, was leading the way, it, become very, it became very more organized. It was about succession. It was about communication. It was about strategy and common goals and where do we want this to go? Because what's the best thing for the family? It's not about four people sitting in a room thinking they're doing a great job making money. It's who's best for what role, how do we divide that up, how do you attract people that are smarter and better than you at their jobs, and, and build an organization. And so our, our history, our exper my experience, is that we've been, we've been talking about that as long as I can remember. And, and we have plans and we have strategies, and we've addressed things years ago about money and status and position and fortunately the way the way we came through it or and the way we've grown up uh, we never had that problem and my brothers and I don't uh, in our businesses today and my boys and I are not going to have those things because they understand all the same things that this is a business the family owns the business the family has is privileged if they're capable of working in the business. But beyond that, it's you're running a business. All right, so 
staying on the family business, okay, my dad, he was the patriarch, and he set it up to where my brother ran our recycling and demolition company, and I ran the equipment company. Very easy, separate duties, didn't step on each other's toes. Now, my question is for the next generation, okay? My daughter, and, and, and we have some of these situations where, George, you have your sons, but not all your sons are in the business, okay? Kevin, you know, you have sibling, or not sibling, but you have sons and, and your brother. They're not necessarily in the business yet. How do they come in? Because my daughter's 24. I offered her a job uh, a month ago. She, she says, not yet. All right, fine, fair enough, because... I'm okay, my son's in college, and I'm wanting him to chase his dream. But how do you bring those in who haven't been in? What advice do you bring those kids in? I mean, what, I mean you know, you gotta start at the bottom, I guess, but there's some of these kids who are college educated. They do have a good work ethic. They have, you know, a strong character. How do you bring them in in positions, and what's your advice for people who, who might have that next generation looking to wait and to see to come in? Any one of you. I think there's a lot more involved to that question because it involves ego. And some family uh, patriarchs out of ego just want to see their children there. Um, I don't agree with that view. Um, it's the view, it's, it's why I'm here. I don't really know if I had a choice growing up. As a kid, I did two things. I was with my father at fishing or working from the, as long as I can remember. Um, I was with him in meetings. I was in a meeting one time, we were eight years old. It, he was just a car flattener then. And this eight-year-old looked up at Mr. Schwartz, who was an important buyer, and said, Mr. Schwartz, why do you have such a big nose? <laughs> It was the relationship that, that my father had with Mr. Schwartz that kept the scrap flowing. But it clearly wasn't a qualification for me to be in the business. I personally have instructed my children that I want them to um, have some type of professional degree behind, behind them. I want them to have some type of professional experience behind them. And I don't want them to take a default to come straight in, which is what I did. But I was guided in. I didn't have much of a choice. Grew up in a top-down atmosphere, and this is what I was told I was going to do. It worked out fantastic. But at the time when my brother and I, and we're twins, for those of you who don't know, we entered the business, we were a much smaller entity. We didn't have a big management team, but today we do. And getting back to the employee question, that's what really runs our business. We're, as family members, family owners, we're stewards of this enterprise. And yes, the family benefits greatly, and as Jay represented, those benefits come with a huge cost. Uh, but for me, uh, when my nephew, my brother's son, uh, started working full-time, what I instructed and advised our loyal employees and managers was, um, your job is to train him, to steward him, to advise him. Um, you are his mentor you are supposed to make it that he can be a leader one day as a family member. And if he can't, he can't. But uh, it's a very difficult emotional subject, fathers, mothers, children coming into the business. George, because you have a lot of your sons in, a couple or not. You know, the, a lot of people feel that their kids have to go work someplace else. And um, 
there was no way I was having my sons do that because I needed them too badly. And You're out of sons, George. Stop <laughs> buying yards. Yeah. But, um, and so, but, you know, a lot of people feel they got to go work someplace else. Um, the, uh, I, I never did that. I'm not saying it's wrong or that it's right. I just needed the help too bad. And so, and I wasn't about to share them with anybody else. I spent my whole life training them. So I wasn't about to share them. But uh, look at it. I I feel that uh, it's not for everybody. My brother's um, kids have no interest in coming in the business, right? And um, I'm not exactly sure why mine decided they wanted to come in the business. But um, I'm my greatest joy is the fact that they're in the business. And uh, but... Look, at it. I think that you have to let them make their own decision, and uh, uh, you can certainly support them, but, I mean, it was 100% their decision. And we'll see if, you know, whether, I mean, I have five sons. There's three of them in the business. I don't know that the other two come in the business, and so, and that's fine. So, the, but I don't think you can push them, and um, I think if it happens and if they really like it, then you're the luckiest person in the whole world. Danny? I think George is, has summed it up. I mean, I came kind of from the same background. We were never required to be in the business, never even maybe expected to be in the business, but we were encouraged to give it a, a chance. And that's how we got in it. And kind of the same thing uh, with my kids. My youngest son just joined in, uh, in January at 30 years old. And uh, he did other things first, although we never required that or expected that like many families do. And uh, in terms of what his potential is and what his opportunity, he's got unlimited opportunity and his potential remains to be seen, but he's starting the same way that from the bottom that we did and that we require most people to do because how, how do you learn the business if you're not involved in the fundamentals? How do you gain respect from people that you have to work with or get to work with or may have to manage someday? And you have to demonstrate that, and your last name doesn't do that for you. So I think, I think that's the plan. You've got to start at the bottom. Just what you said, Johnny, earlier, you have to start at the bottom. And so you put your kids out there directing traffic, you put them on the scale, you put them on a torch, you put them buying non-ferris over the scale, and they got to do every one of those jobs, just like we did, right? I mean, that's what they got to do. I was driving tow truck when I could drive, you know? And so, I mean, that's just what you got to do. So. Jay, you want to add to this? So, so I, I got charged with trying to figure out, Rob says you need to take Michael, who's sitting out here, and this was, you know, 14 years ago, and he says he's coming in, He's worked in non-Ferris. you got to get him ready. It's like, great. What are you going to do with him? It's like, I'm going to banish his ass to Gulfport, Mississippi, to a little teeny tiny yard, and that's where he's going to stay. And Michael, you still talk to Jay? Where are you, Michael? <laughs> he doesn't want to talk to me every day, but he does talk to me every day. But the reason was, and, and the reason is that, and Rob didn't understand, it's like, look, you send to a small yard. I grew up at a small yard. And you are the waymaster, your safety, your customer service. You clean the toilet. You, you know, you're the maintenance guy. You are everything. There is no crew of people surround you. You become 
able to learn everything at an alarming pace. When the alarm goes off at night, there's nobody else to call. It is you. So you, you all of a sudden, you rely on your people. You understand the customers. You're touching every single bit of that business, and you can't get away from it. And, you know, I think Rob thought it was going to be a 30-day trial. Well, a year later, it's like, okay, maybe. But, you know, for me, the people that are most successful and all of us sitting here, you know, we started because our fathers or grandfathers were in it and going, squish, 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 you know, long before he had a license. How many of us didn't drive before he had a license? Go get that. It's like, I don't know license. Doesn't matter. Go get it. And that's just the world we grew up in. And so you learn all these things. And the one bit that I think Michael hears me all the time is somebody say, no, you can't fix that. And he knows from the silence that that means, no, the person told you can't fix it. It means now it's up to you to go figure out how to fix it. Because in our world, that's opportunity. No one can do it. You can't do this. You can't do that. But when you're all of a sudden, it doesn't small, matter how small that business is, you're in charge of that universe. And you understand how important the people are, from the customer to the cleaning person to everyone. And you treat everyone in that cycle with respect. And I think that's the solution. Now, where do you do it? Is it a popular thing when you're doing it to someone else's children? Not so much, but I think it is a good way to learn. So everybody loves it now that you're in a family business, right? <laughs> a lot of challenges. All right, let's shift gears. Let's talk about technology in our industry because it is definitely rapidly changing on so many ways. How is technology, what is some technologies that you can share without giving away company secrets that you guys are imploring you know, that you've implemented into your company that people in the audience should know about because it's there and it can enhance their operations. Anybody can start. I don't care. You want me to pick a person? Jay, you're up. Because you looked at me. You know, I, I can't tell you. I, I, we are constantly scanning for everything that comes up. I think there's so many opportunities, whether it's in sorting and you look at these technologies. I think if you're not watching some of this amazing stuff, um, you look at the Libs technology, it's like, it's like Star Wars. It's laser. Is it right there and ready for commercial installation at the volumes we need to do? I don't think it's quite there. But you look at sortation. You look at the improvements. And when someone asks me that question, it's usually I say, look, when I was at my first shredder in the early 80s, there was nothing. There was nothing. There was no non-ferrous downstream. We were running the shredder for the ferrous material and one person was in a little wooden booth on the side of the stacker picking anything that was shiny off of it. And that was, that was our non-ferrous downstream. And he had a drinking problem. So, you know, it was variable, very variable. And then we got eddy currents, and then we got ISSs, and then we had air classification. We blew the shit out of those for a while. Um, but we learned, and it's an industry that constantly evolves, and every little piece. I heard somebody talking today, and I'm a big advocate. I think you're going to have replacement technology to, to where it's pickers on the Ferris line. The volumes we're running at and the amount of material, there, there has to be a mechanical solution. And somebody's going to find out. There's a number of things today. It's better every time. It will continue to evolve. So I think in every aspect of our safety and our equipment, all the, the laser sensors and the proximity sensors that keep you safe in the yard, 
all each little thing that we bolt on that makes our business a little better, it's, a, it's one step at a time we get better as an industry, and we get better together. And part of what I think is unique about our industry, we're here. We share. When somebody says, ooh, I found something great. You know, we have crazy calls with each other. It's like I stumbled on something. That's unique about our industry, and that's why sitting here today and we talk about things, opportunities, this is an industry that's just full of them. George, you don't share with me, and you have a yard right down the street. <laughs> I, gotta, I, I, I don't know that we're doing anything really amazing right now that everybody's not out there, that there's you know, not samples in this show here. But I do think that AI and robotics are going to dramatically change everything we do on picking. And, uh, you know, looking at the videos of these different robots and stuff that are picking off of belts and with AI, the way it can recognize now, I, I just can't imagine we will have human pickers in the next couple of years. I just don't think they'll exist. And I think that everything will be done um, robotically uh, because you just can't afford not to. And so Kevin? I really believe it's coming. Look, the technology is is what gives us the ability to keep moving forward and to grow internally. And it doesn't have to be technology of sortation and eddy currents and sensor plants and, and machines that can detect a piece of metal and determine that it's a piece of wire and an air jet that shoots it out better than a sniper. It could be simple as that for the members in this room that you have the electronic equipment so you can look on your computer and see how much fuel your excavator burned for the day. Is your oil running too hot? All these little tools that bring longer life to your equipment, make it more efficient. Uh, tech, whether you install a computer system for your scale or you operate antiquated. But what we do know about the scrap business is that while anybody can be competitive in it no matter where they start, and anyone can grow to become quite large, those that don't reinvest in technology or equipment go backwards. All right, Danny, let, you, you want to be known as Mr. Aluminum. So Thank there's you. a lot of new technology, Mr. <laughs> Aluminum. So you're building this plant. So tell us about it, what you're able to share, and the technologies that you have learned that weren't available 10 years ago that you're going to be able to implement to help this new venture for you. Sure. Well, like, like Kevin said, technology is a tool. And in our businesses, there's a lot of tools, but how do you apply them to solve someone else's problem or create a product that hasn't been created before or anything that's going to create some sort of competitive edge or long-term advantage? So when, when we were still in the Ferris business in Delta, uh, we did try robots for picking copper products off of, the, off of the beeline. And it was a great idea, but it didn't work. It was too soon. We ended up taking them all out, going back to humans, which can't pick 2,000 picks an hour, can't tell this optical stuff. But it didn't work, but it will work because it's being applied in, in many places. We had a process uh, that separated some of the higher copper alloys and analyzed the material before it went into the mill. That added value. That was, that was a real benefit to uh, North Star and became a benefit to us eventually. Right on. Uh, and in, but in aluminum, 
as we really got more heavily into into the non-ferrous and aluminum in 2015, we determined that some sort of shredding had to be, had to occur in order to separate the material. You had to present all these technologies or all the mechanical devices require the burden to be presented in a certain way. And uh, first time I ever saw that was at your place years ago. But so what we what we started uh, on was a mission to try to be able to sort the grades of scrap aluminum into scrap products that we could represent or certify a chemistry with. That, we're still working on that, but that took us into, beyond eddies of course, into x-rays, into some of the AI stuff, uh, working with lasers and some other things, and and we're pursuing that hard because we think that's going to be important in the aluminum business to segregate the mixed alloys auto automotive, to segregate the scrap that's, that's going to be needed to become more and more precise and, uh, and, and satisfy the alloy requirements of the consumers. Thank you. All right, so earlier today I had a session on your equipment is a mirror into your company culture. And we talk about the technologies, you know, AI, and, and little by little investing, Kevin, you said, investing into your yard. Each and every one of you invested multi-millions of dollars into your operations, big sums of money. Where do they start? Where do the people in this audience who are not your size or don't have the, the sophistication of the equipment that you have, what would you suggest to them? Where do you start the investment in your facility? Is it environmental? Anywhere but Long Island, New York. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's safe to say. Hey, you know, I, I don't think I'd go to New York either. But anyway, what advice you got for them? Where do you start? Is it environmental? Is it safety, production? If it can't be all, where do you start? Look, you, you got to do whatever's going to make you money first, right? Because environmental, I mean, it'll save you money from regulators, but it doesn't make you money, right? So the, the, I think that the first things first is whatever is going to make you money that you can then fund the other stuff, right? If you're a shredder operator, you add an eddy current, and you start out with one, and then pretty soon you get two. And then, as Jay said, you add a sensor or, you know, it, it, it's, uh, but you start out, with whatever's going to give you the most money. And then you can springboard up off of that to do the other things in your yard. But um, uh, you start out small, step by step. Nobody ever starts out big. Unless you have unless a lot of George. money. No. All right. Anybody else got to add to this? Danny. I'd say in, in, in a small yard, forgetting technology or segments or things like that, you start with a broom and a shovel and a power washer. You got to start with housekeeping and order and, and having your facility organized, because if you don't, you don't have a chance to make money, and then you move to the equipment and all the other things. Jay? Well, Danny kind of stole my thunder. My thing is, go into your office and go into the restroom and say, is it clean and neat, and start clean there. And then every day, paint a ballard or clean a step or clean something, let them know it's important to you and it should be important to them, and make sure you stick after it. And you'll get a trend. And then if you say, I want something improved every day, no matter how small it is, that picks up. That picks up momentum, and people start taking care of it. And John and I were talking today, 
excavators, we all got cranes out in our yards. The counterweights are all scratched up. You saw John. I told him today, go out and paint that counterweight. And then tell the operator, every time you get in that thing in the morning, I want you to look at that. If it's scratched, you got to go over there and you paint that again. And I want you to actively try and stop impacting that. If you're hitting anything with it, you're too close to something. Just stop. And that gets to be a habit. And then all of a sudden, so one step at a time, you're, you, there is no magic wand. And I tell you, there's no magic wand. But if it looks like shit and you wouldn't let your mother, excuse me, if it looks like crap and you wouldn't let your mother in there or you wouldn't let your, your dentist, somebody used to tell me, pretend your dentist was coming to visit, would you let him walk in there? If you wouldn't, go clean it up. Because your most important thing is your people and how they see you take care of your possessions and how you take care of them. And I think that's, that's really the important part. Kevin. Look, um, Rome isn't, wasn't built in a day, and very few of us have the ability to take a greenfield vacant piece of land and have a scrapyard. And one of the most amazing visits I ever had, I've been very fortunate through my career that people have been generous to me to allow me to enter their facilities and talk to them, and, and Danny did that. And when he opened up Waterloo, it was an amazing facility, but what amazed me more was that it was open from scratch. It wasn't just the shredder that was needed or the baler or the roll-off trucks, the pens, the paper, the paper clips, everything was needed. And when you think about what it takes to develop a scrapyard, small one, big one, investment's tremendous. And so it can't happen overnight for the smaller yard, but you have to pick and choose, one, what do you need to do to make money? And two, you, you slowly move forward. Maybe you can't paint every room in your house all at once, but you can paint a room every year or something like that. And so you may not be able to have a fully paved, concreted yard overnight, but maybe every year you could add a certain number of square footage to it, and before you know it, you have real infrastructure. And infrastructure is what gives you value. Thank you. You know, I, I think that insight, that's what I tried to get across. But I think coming from you guys with the multiple facilities and, and the success you have, hopefully drives home. All right. Um, we got a few minutes here. I got one question for you guys. Last question. And then I, if there's some questions from the audience, we'll take that. Our industry has been under fire. Our image sucks. Let's face it. We do a terrible job in our image. What's got to change? What do we got to do? Jay, you go first. Well, you wrote me into repurpose, and that pretty much was the start for me on changing the narrative. We have been frustrated in talking about how hard it was for anybody to listen to us, and nobody understood who we were. And John said, I'm going to do this. Will you do it? And it's like, okay. And that was the first step. And, and I think, John, to your credit, we've used that tool to open a lot of doors. And... It, we've, we've, we've really kicked down some big doors and made some big progress. But I think we had to understand that, that we are important. And important from the standpoint of going to a politician and saying, this is, this is important to everything you believe either side of the aisle. Government spending and infrastructure requires steel, requires scrap. It's essential to have recycled materials to... Uh, sorry, caught myself again. Um, but in the end... It, it drives all our military needs right now. We are, we are involved in a military uh, um, operation today in supplying things around the world. We have to go to, to speed up production. They're going to need steel. 
everything we do, as John's podcast every single day keep reminding us, requires recycled materials. And to me, it's what we do with that and getting out and think and this this revolution online, which I didn't understand one iota till he said, "Come here for a day," and. It's got momentum. It's got traction. People hear about it. They read about it. They understand us. And if you get somebody that doesn't know what we do, have them watch that. Have them listen. It is, it is probably the most down-to-earth look at what we do in that circular economy. Everybody talks about circular economy. You know, it goes from the yard to the steel mill and out the door in 48 hours. You know, and, then, and any one of us has that same thing. We are so efficient when it comes in that door. It comes, it goes, and it turns. And that's what everybody talks about in recycling. And we have a great story to tell. We just never really told it or told it loud enough in enough detail. So, Anybody else want to join in here? Danny? George? Kevin? Come on. All right. Look, at the, I think there's a lot of pieces of it, but uh, the, I think there's a lot of different things that hurt our image. Obviously, we talked, you know, Jay said earlier about I think he mentioned your dentist come over. I don't know why he picked dentist, but uh, look at it. I, I think you need to be proud of your yard, but I think that there's so many aspects, but I think one of the biggest things that's hurting us right now are the fires that we're having, you know, throughout our yards. And whether it's a, a shredder yard or it's a <clears throat> just a regular scrap yard, today with lithium batteries, they're catching on fire. We never had this issue 20 years ago. And so, and the only way you don't have a fire is if you don't have a pile. And so I think fires are really hurting our industry. I think metal theft is really hurting our industry. And I think that, you know, those things are self-inflicted on our parts. And as long as we keep burning our yards and having fires rage for two or three days at a time, we're going to get a bad rap. And um, the, if our yards look like, you know, Sanford and Sons junkyards, we're going to get a bad rap. And so our yards got to be clean. They got to be organized, just as Danny was saying. And uh, the uh, and got to keep our inventories down so they don't catch on fire. Kevin, Danny, you guys want to jump in on this? I think historically, the industry has had an image problem. Anyhow, no matter how much we view ourselves as recyclers or what we've all tried to do, technologically or operationally. The industry has always been seen as not in my backyard, go on the other side of the tracks, don't want to look at you, don't want to hear you, anything. And so we've operated in that mentality for so many decades. Coming out of it is a challenge, but so much of what we need to do is like what you're doing and, and remarket the industry. We have to convince people show people, demonstrate that it's a valuable industry and that it contributes to everything. And I'll tell you, we're seeing that right now. We're trying to site a new plant and the amount of time and energy it takes, which is worth it to deal with municipal uh, officials and deal with communities and people and, and educate them we're going in the right direction and the industry's going that way, but that's the, I'd say that's the challenge. Kevin, anything to add? I think the biggest challenge our industry has is that we actually are the good guys here, right? We're, we're not a, we're an industry, we have issues, we have polluting issues, we have other things, but it's all because of what we do. We recycle, we reuse. And that story, which goes back 
you know, hundreds of years just never gets told. It gets caught up in the weeds with what George said of fires and our PR. But the truth is the general public has no idea what the scrap metal processing industry is, except for that they don't want it in their own town. They have no idea of the benefit of it. And the public will accept certain businesses. You can't have a community without a funeral parlor. You can't have it without a supermarket. But one without a scrapyard we know can't exist, but the community doesn't recognize that. It really falls upon us and our industry association to tell the story simplicity. We're the good guys here. We're the good guys. All right. Um, do we have a microphone for the audience, or I'll just go out there. Who's got questions? Oh, you got to... All right. Somebody's got to have a question for this panel. You don't get this opportunity to talk to these four gentlemen. Who's, who's got something to say here? Not so much a question as much as, you know, just speaking on top of that, it, uh, it is surprising that there is a bad rap for, for the scrap metal industry because it's quite the, you know, tremendous solution to fresh resource extraction. Well, um, you know, you know. Th that's because you know what the scrap metal industry is, but the bulk of the public has no clue of what the scrap metal industry is. But something Danny said... You know, we were always on the wrong side of the tracks. It's like, you're scrap, go on the other side of the tracks. Somebody moved the damn tracks recently, and all of a sudden, we're in the middle of town, and we're not so far outside, and now they recognize us and say, go to the other side of the tracks. It's like, but, but. All right. Uh, here's a question from, uh, the, I, I didn't download the app. I apologize. But here's a question. How will competitive scenario on purchasing change with the U.S. EPA mandating emission controls on shredders. Specifically, how will it affect the playing field since the required controls will not be required at all shredders? I don't have a shredder. I can't answer that one. Somebody jump in here. I mean, look, we, we got RTOs on, you know, two of our shredders. We're putting a third one on right now. And so um, I think that you know, over time, the bigger shredders will have to have regenerative thermal oxidizers. They'll have to burn their emissions. Um, I don't know that the smaller ones will because they don't produce enough. You know, it's all about how many tons of, uh, of um, particles that you produce. And so I think that I, I don't know that it'll be a level playing field, but I think that's just life. Get over it. I believe it will not be a level playing field. Um, I'm going to say something that most of this panel here would not agree with me, but I'm in a different position. I don't operate multiple shredders that may be exempt in certain geographic areas. So I operate a shredder that's not exempt, and we will have to install emission controls. So from my perspective, I believe that it's an unlevel playing field. I believe the same consumers that I'm shipping scrap to in the Ohio Valley or wherever, I have to compete to sell my shred to those consumers with friends and non-friends who will not have to spend the millions of dollars and whatever it costs per ton to operate the emissions mousetrap. I also believe that on a, a government level, that if the US EPA is going to require this, even from a snipering point of view of the large shredders, that just the way we put tariffs on imports of finished steel, we should have tariffs on imports of shredded steel that are not produced from shredders with emission controls. If we're going to force American companies to spend this money, and there is no return on investment, it's just the right to stay in business. You can, I'm passionate about this. I'm emotional about this. 
Um, I believe that we need to have a level playing field. And government's job is to create a level playing field for all of us. And that's not what's occurring at the federal EPA. Justice isn't blind. Anybody else want to jump in on that? Well, I'm not holding out hope that the government's going to level the playing field for me, as much as I would like to think so. But I, I, I just think that, thank God, there's not another shredder that's not in the, that doesn't have to have emission control. That'll help you for a while. Uh, I think it's going to go through time. I'm not sure, you know, thermal oxidizers are a great thing until they blow up or they have a problem. They are huge consumers of natural gas. They're incredibly, uh, it, it is like chasing your tail. So I think technology there might change too, and I think the EPA might change. But where I think we stand to gain, and it comes with this whole image thing, and the whole work we've done at the government level is we need a room with the EPA where we can talk about the fact that we didn't produce any of this. The cars, the washers, the dryers, the refrigerators, the hot water heaters that are producing mercury PFS, uh, um, PFAS, PFAS, you know, all the emissions factors we're, we're, we're fighting for, we didn't produce one bit of that. We are trying to put the bulk of that material, recycle it, what can be. This is the outcome of all that. Help us find a way. Give us a 10-year plan to say we know we can, we can where we want to be in 10 years. We're going to help you get there through tax credits, through efficient means, through help doing some testing, through helping us get there together and cooperatively because recycling is still the goal, and this is, a, this is a necessary part of it. And us helping keep that material from the landfill and from causing further problems in our communities. Kevin. One of the other items is, is, is feel-good legislation. So the environmental community, hats off to them. Without them, we wouldn't be breathing clean air and have clean water. But on the other hand, sometimes their targets are just misplaced. So for example, EPR, Extended Producer Responsibility. In the state of New York, which they're trying to pass legislation so that we could have smaller on the cereal boxes, smaller boxes so we have less waste of cardboard. It's all good, but everyone ignores lithium-ion batteries, batteries in electric vehicles, yet these items come to the scrapyard, and then the public, the EPA, the administrators may not be happy with how we handle them. But when you think of EPR, the government and the environmentalists are not looking at those items that we handle. They're looking at feel-good items, and that needs to change. I would make the argument that Mr. Musk should take back his own batteries. So I'm going to give you one funny battery story. I own an old firehouse, and last week I was changing a smoke alarm. And I was up on the ladder, someplace I shouldn't be anymore, and I wiggled it, and it fell, hit the ground, and burst into flames. I had the smoke detector inside the firehouse on fire. It's like, well, this is going to be hard to explain. You're hard to explain, Jay. All right. All right, everybody. Here's another question for you panelists, and I had... I think everybody owes an answer to it. What would you do differently if you could do it over to be more successful? I don't think that uh, regrets in life are a good thing to have. But if I could go back to my younger self, I would like to tell my younger self not to be as pompous, not to be a wise ass, not to be so entitled. Thank you. Jay? I'm still kind of a wise ass, but um, <laughs> the one thing, I have one real regret that I would do different is 
my dad was that old patriarch, and he didn't believe in higher education. And he wouldn't let me go to college. And he said, why didn't you go to college? When I die, this is all going to be yours. I continued on, and I've done incredibly well, and I'm thankful for my family and everything we've been able to do. But if I could tell you one thing, get every bit of education, no matter how it is or how it comes, take, listen to everything you hear, because none of that education is anything but helpful to you. So, George, Mr. Perfect, come on. Shit. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's a really good question. Look, at I, I feel like... Most of the dumb shit stuff I've done in my life was like has made me who I am and has uh, and I've learned from them. But me personally, uh, you know, I would have become an engineer instead of an attorney. And, you know, in my family business, my brother Terry is an engineer and he handles the legal department because it doesn't trust me to read legal documents because I just kind of look at the bottom line. He won't I, let you sign until he's read it. Exactly. And I work, you know, I pretty much spend my time in the engineering department because I love eddy current plants, and that's what I like to build. And so if I do it over again, I would have become an engineer and because uh, I think it would have been more helpful. But uh, anyway, I feel like most of the dumbass mistakes I've made in my life, I've learned from the hard way. And so uh, I don't know if I didn't make those mistakes, and maybe I wouldn't have learned it. So. How about you, Mr. Rifkin? Come on. Well, what when, would you do over? when you get as old as some of us might be, <laughs> you have a you, life is full of regrets, but it doesn't do any good. So I I really don't regret. Life has taken me on the path it's taken me. You, you make choices that you wish you would have done differently, but one change in that would have changed my whole life, and so. I love it. The only thing I could even say was I wish I would have retired when my brothers did. <laughs> <laughs> well, they were the smart ones. They go, I got brothers. They were always the smart yeah, one. Yeah. I was the dumb one that worked all well, the time. Well, I've always had a saying about regrets. Regrets are for those who forgot what their options were. And I think that's to your point. You know, you, you just did what you did. You learned from it. All right, last question. We're coming up here to our drop-dead time. What are the best solutions for fire prevention? I'll go first. You since, love this subject. Since I talked about you earlier today about since this. Since it's my pet peeve, there's only one way to prevent a fire, and that's to not have a pile. That's it. I mean, anything else you do, you're kidding yourselves. You're going to have a fire. But at the same time, um, the, um, I feel that most people do not have water at their piles, you know, they don't have fire hoses and they don't do fire drills. And so I make my guys do a fire drill every single month and we pull the hoses out and we spray the piles. And the, uh, I can't tell you how many times that I buy a yard and there's no water anywhere near where the pile is, especially like the shredders. And if they catch on fire, there's nothing they can do. And so I believe in having water trucks you know, that are specifically for fire. I believe in having nozzles on top. I believe in, in making sure that you have enough high-pressure water to get to, um, to be able to put it out. You know, the, so many often you turn on the hose and it just pisses out the end. Excuse me, drips out the end. And oh, not, even better visual. That not, happens too, drips it, out the end. And, not, uh, and, and won't spray. Sorry. <laughs> What do you want me to say? Sounds like it's cocktail hour. 
anybody else on fire prevention? You have to recognize... Corticopia. You have to recognize, and you also have to make sure your community and your regulatory agencies recognize that it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. Because that will help ease the pain when when comes. But echoing on George, you have to have the infrastructure. You have to have the, the tools to try to control a fire and extinguish it before it gets too big. Jay, anything to add? You know, I, I've always feared fires. I can't preach enough. My guys are here. They see me looking at them because it is, it is absolutely, as George says, run it to the ground. I sleep better at night. I know you don't do it for you. Do it for me. And the other last little tidbit is know your local fire department. Bring them over. Have them tour the plant. Let them see it. Let them know the hydrants are there and you're keeping them clear. That means the world when they pull in and they know where to go. It is incredibly helpful when they understand the plant. So. We, we allow at all of our facilities, the local fire departments to enter them to do training. What that creates also, especially since we have volunteer fire departments where we are, but we do the same in New York City with our facilities. It creates a much more rapid response time when we do need them. Because not only do they know where we are, they know that we allow them to use the facility, but they actually know the facility. They know where the piles are, they know where the equipment is. It's a real added advantage to help them with their training because when you need them, it makes them more prepared. Danny, anything to add? All right, gentlemen, I want to thank you. George has got a bunch of books over there. Do you mind signing a few books for some people? If anybody wants one signed, I'm happy to sign them. And if they run out over the next couple days, they can always email me. Always email. All right, well, listen, gentlemen, uh, Jim's going to say something here, but you know what? I want to, Jay, you got something? I just want to take a second from all of us, from everyone here, and thank Jim and his team for putting on this event and allowing us to get together. Gentlemen, thank you for your time, your, you know, your interaction, and your openness to tell these people in the audience a little bit about really what's made you all successful. Because a little bit of everything you've talked about is what, what I know about all four of you is you live this. This isn't bullshit. This isn't, you know, just say it for the audience. These gentlemen up here live everything they've said. Hopefully you've listened and you got some take-home value. Gentlemen, thank you so much. Jimmy, you're thank, up. Thank you for being at Scrap Expo 2023. Enjoy Louisville tonight. This has been a Sierra International Machinery original audio series. Thanks for listening. Please share this podcast and make sure to subscribe.